0: Friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series through the book of Malachi leading up to the advent of the Lord Jesus. Um, Our scripture reading for this morning is Malachi chapter 3 verses 6 through 12. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God Almighty, words that were written for you and written for me. For I, the Lord, Do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? For you, that's probably some kind of insect, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. So I've told you before, probably more than once, that I grew up literally about five miles from where Jim and Tammy Faye Baker got their start in building their televangelism empire. Not, not far at all from where I grew up. In 1974 they launched what became known, known as the PTL uh, network and club with half a dozen friends By 1987, they stood in the midst of a veritable ministry empire. That included their own satellite network, a 2,300-acre theme park that was visited at its height by more than 6 million people a year. They enjoyed countless followers. Well, by 1989... It all came crashing down during a very tumultuous, I still remember this, a very notorious, well-publicized, tumultuous six-week trial that hinged on the government's contention that Baker had built his followers out of over $158 million and had illegally diverted millions to support His lifestyle of opulence and luxury the backbone of his sales pitch is what we would describe as the prosperity gospel okay the way that he would try to legitimize his ministry the ways that he would try to encourage his viewers to give and give and give and give and the prosperity gospel is the belief that financial and physical well-being and blessing are always the will of God, and that faith plus generous financial donations to religious causes, okay, will ensure material prosperity. Baker was ultimately convicted on all 24 counts of fraud and conspiracy, and he served six years in federal prison. Well, I found out just a few days ago that Jim Baker is back. He is back in Missouri with his own theme park, his own show. He's got the PTL Network name back, and he is back at it. This time, he's largely putting on a kind of infomercial. And I watched an entire episode where for a $200 donation, you could acquire an almost miraculous cream called Silver Solution that can cure almost anything until he claimed it could cure COVID-19 and the state of Missouri shut him down recently. It's no longer being offered on the website. I mean, really, you could go online right now and watch one of those shows. I wouldn't encourage it, but it's possible. Well, running a TV network is very expensive. And he encouraged his viewers viewers that in order for him to stay on the air offering this wonderful programming, he needed viewers to give and give generously. And he based almost the entirety of his plea on our text this morning. On Malachi chapter 3 with a special emphasis on verse 10. That was his justification, and he read this verse with soft music playing in the background, hoping that it would tug at the hearts of his viewers. Malachi 3.10, Jim Baker shamelessly read, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. He placed special emphasis on where the Lord says, Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. And see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Sadly, this verse is one of the most abused verses in Scripture and is without question one of the favorites of the prosperity gospel preachers. And the reason it gets so abused, it's, it's probably pretty obvious, right? It's easy. To understand how this verse gets abused because it seems to offer on the surface does it not on the surface seem like it promises an unqualified promise or formula to acquire a great material blessing from God in this life but that is not what the promise involved in Malachi's day even though it seems to make an unqualified promise that you could test the Lord in this and give sacrificially and generously and bring the full tithe in and in response he'll open up the windows of heaven and bless you immensely. Okay? The ways that pre- TV preachers have distorted this are not, are not accurate. Um, m- Nor is this text applicable for us in like a one-to-one fashion today. This was a specific promise given to a specific and particular people in a particular context. Now There are other texts of scripture that uh, that are directly addressed to a particular people, but maybe broader principles can be applied to our day and age. And that's true here, but my point is it's not a one-to-one. We can't just name and claim this verse and expect our storehouses, if you will, our bank accounts to fill up. Okay, let's remember the context of Malachi. This is about 400 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And the people of God had grown apathetic and indifferent. Do you remember by this point in Malachi why people had grown apathetic and indifferent? You might even say they had grown disillusioned because they read the promises of the prophets and they were hopefully expecting to be be delivered through God's promised Messiah and that had not come yet. They were still under the power and tyranny of the Medo-Persians. The Messiah had not come. And I think for many, they had lost faith in the promises of God. Okay, and because of their lack of faith in the promises of God, um, disobedience had increased. Do you remember some of the issues so far that we've covered in the book of Malachi? What are some of the things that the people were doing or not doing? They weren't bringing the best of their sacrifices, if you remember, that was too much money. They couldn't afford it, they didn't think, so they brought kind of the leftovers, if you will. They weren't bringing their best to God in terms of sacrifices. They weren't honoring the marital covenant, if you remember that. They were divorcing their wives, they were marrying non-Jews, they were doing all manner of things like that. They also were, had the audacity to accuse God of what? Of being unjust, of not treating them fairly, Rightly well today. We see that in addition to all these things They weren't giving either. They weren't giving their best in terms of sacrifices And they weren't bringing in their tithes and offerings. So what does the word tithe literally mean? the word tithe tithe literally means a tenth and In the Old Testament the tithe was God's way of supporting the Levites the Levites were charged with caring for administering the worship of God in Israel. Okay, the other tribes in Israel all had allotments of land that they could, they could plant and sow and reap a harvest from. Like, in other words, they could make a living based on the allotments of land they had been given. The Levites were the only group of people that were not given Tribal allotments of land, so they had no inheritance their inheritance if you will was the Lord and So the in the economy of Old Testament Israel The tithes were singularly singularly devoted to supporting the Levites and the worship of God Okay, like numbers 1821 reads God says I give to the Levites all the tithes and so there would be lots of different tithes You would give a tenth of this And that of this harvest and this crop and you would bring in the first and the best of your harvest and you would make offerings to the Lord in Numbers 1821 it reads I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work that they do while serving at the tent of meeting okay so the tithes went to supporting the Levites in their work Um, administrating worship in Israel that's what the tithe was dedicated to and in Malachi's day they had stopped bringing in the full tithe okay Um, their obedience fell short in lots of areas including the tithe because they had lost faith in the promises of God and they were not trusting him as they should so let's look at our text Malachi 3 that's the background So we've seen their disobedience spill over into multiple areas. They weren't bringing the best sacrifices, they were dishonoring their marital vows, they were calling God unjust, and now they weren't bringing their tithes and their offerings. And so if you remember how this book is set up from a literary standpoint, point, God would make an assertion or an accusation. He'll say, you're not doing this or you are doing that. And then the people act shocked and they say, well, how are we doing this? In what ways are we guilty? And then the Lord explains how. that dynamic's going to happen again here. Malachi 3, verse 6, For I, Yahweh, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. What he's saying here is that, yes, while you're unfaithful, and you do change in terms of your love for me, I never change. I'm a faithful God. I always honor my promises. And you better be thankful, because if I... If I went back on my promises, I would cut you off fully, but I'm not going to do that because I don't change. I remain faithful to the covenant. Verse 7, here's kind of the generic charge. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. In other words, you're just like your forefathers in the faith who worshipped idols, who didn't trust in me, that got them taken off into captivity, Now you're back, but really you're no different. You're repeating these same patterns over and over again. The second half of verse 7, the Lord says, Return to me. In other words, repent, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, like the people are clueless. They don't know what's going on. This is coming as a shock to them. But you say, how shall we return? In other words, what are we doing wrong? What do we have to repent for? Verse 8, here comes the specific accusation. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say inexplicably, how have we robbed you? Well, in your tithes and your contributions. In other words, you're not giving what you're called to give, what the Mosaic law would mandate you give. Verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, The whole nation of you. Okay, what's going on is the people are suffering. They're probably teetering on the verge of of economic, financial, agricultural collapse. In the Old Covenant, in the Mosaic Covenant, there were blessings for obedience if the people followed the covenant. But there were also curses for disobedience when the people were not following the covenant. Look with me at verse 9. He says in the present tense, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. That's one of the reasons that their nation was in such disarray, and they were facing such difficulty on many fronts because they had, been not, they had not been honoring the Lord, and so the curses of the covenant were being brought to bear. The Lord had probably withheld rain, there was probably a kind of famine going on. The economy was devastated, but God was going to graciously give them another chance. He wasn't going to just do away with them. Okay, and he was going to even challenge them to test him because they had, he, the Lord had diagnosed what was going on. The people had lost their belief and trust in the promises of God. They were tired of waiting. They were wondering whether or not his promise of a Messiah would truly come to pass. And rather than, like, judging them and cutting them off fully, he graciously accommodates himself to their situation, and he says, in this particular situation, okay, this is not going to be a one-to-one in the same way in our day and age, but he says to them, in this situation, people, test me. Try me out. See if I won't open the windows of heaven and meet your needs. Look at verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Okay, they had probably not been bringing in. Maybe they had been giving sun, but they haven't been given, they had not been giving the full tenth. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house for the Levites and thereby put me to the test says the lord see if i will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need now that last last few words in verse 10 are so important he would bless them and care for them until what until their bank accounts were exploding is that what it promised no, until what? Until there is no more need. In other words, they were facing stiff sanctions from the Lord for their lack of obedience. And their harvest had not been what it could be, and there probably had been a drought and all kinds of things, and the Lord was saying, Test me, I'll bless you. I'll open the windows of heaven. I'll bring back the grain the rain, you know, I'll give you a harvest again. He was not promising unlimited wealth or riches and two this was obviously an exceptional case because back in the wilderness what did the Lord say about testing God what did the Lord say to his people back in Deuteronomy 6 in the context of the wilderness wanderings the Lord said to the people you shall not put the Lord your God to the test correct That's what the Lord says in Deuteronomy 6. Later, during the temptations of Christ, and Satan is tempting Jesus to do something unwise, what does Jesus respond to Satan? How does he respond back to Satan? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So this is an exceptional circumstance in a particular context and situation where the Lord says, test me in this. So the relevant question for us is how in the world are we to apply a text like this today? Okay, we understand what it meant for them in their context. What does it mean for us in ours? Now, I need to give you a disclaimer My view on this has changed a little bit over the years Um, It's changed a little bit since when I preached this about ten years ago and I am now persuaded, and this is where it's very humbling to be a preacher, and in many ways, you know, like because as you kind of maybe um, grow and evolve and, and even learn the Bible better, sometimes some of your views can subtly change over time. Um, I'm now persuaded that the tithe, okay, as, as, as it was um, fleshed out in the Mosaic Covenant, I'm no longer persuaded that that tithe is mandated for Christians today. Okay, so I've I've changed in my view, I'm going to do my math for you, and we're all going to consider this together. Okay, I am now persuaded that the tithe that God intended for Israel to support the Levites, does not apply in a one to one fashion for the church today. That is not to say that we are not called to give to the ministry of the local church and other Christian causes. Okay, so let's look. If you have your Bibles, or you can pull it up on your iPhone, um, obviously we don't have Bibles in the, in the, in the, um, underneath the chairs because of COVID issues, but, but go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it's not on the insert. There are two other passage on, passages on the insert, but not 1st Corinthians 9. I want to go to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 7. The context of 1 Corinthians 9 is the Apostle Paul is telling the Corinthian church. He's saying to them that he's giving up his right to require financial support from them ultimately because he doesn't want to be a he doesn't want it to be a stumbling block he doesn't want people to think that he's ministering them to them because of the money he doesn't want that to get into the way of preaching christ he doesn't want people to think he's trying to get rich off them so he gives up his right to require financial support from the corinthians okay But in so doing we're going to understand his argument for why he thinks he has the right to it But again, he's freely giving it up He has the freedom to require it, but he's giving up his freedom. I think it's very telling How he establishes that principle? Okay First Corinthians 9 verse 7 Paul writes Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? In other words, he's asking his readers, who works for free? Who engages in their vocational employment and doesn't get compensated for it, okay? Continuing on, verse 8. He clarifies this isn't just his opinion, okay? Do I say this merely on human authority? Okay, he's saying this is not just my opinion. He writes doesn't the law say the same thing Okay, verse 9 for it is written in the law of Moses. All right, so stop there What you might expect is for Paul to now quote from the tithe of the Old Testament if there was ever a time For him to root his argument in the tithe this would be it You know I could require you to support my ministry On The basis of the tithe, but I'm not going to that's not what he does. He cites another Old Testament verse Let's look Verse 9 for it is written in the law of Moses Now this seems so obscure do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain That's Deuteronomy 25 4 so he's saying in the same way You shouldn't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain you should allow the ox to eat and partake of some of its labor. He's going to say that's kind of just a general principle. And if that's true there, it's a comparison from a lesser to greater to a greater, if that's true there, then how much more true is it is it true of those who, who labor in vocational ministry? So he doesn't quote from the tithe, he doesn't quote from Malachi 3, he quotes from Deuteronomy 25:4: Do not muzzle the ox. While it's treading out the grain and then he explains it is it about oxen that God is concerned then go to verse 14 The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel He's saying I could require financial support From you because I'm laboring for you. I am preaching the gospel to you. I am shepherding you. I'm caring for you Okay and he's saying that's just the right thing to do in general. Is it not obvious to support those who are who are ministering to you? Okay, now look at your insert. The bottom one, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. And so Paul is teaching Timothy for how Timothy, you know, what Timothy's to teach when Timothy goes and visits some of these local churches and whatnot. And so he's going to teach Timothy that there are some elders in the church, those elders who primarily preach and teach, he's gonna tell Timothy, those elders who preach and teach, those elders are entitled to compensation, okay? So let's look here, 1 Timothy 5:17 and 18. He writes, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. That Word, double honors like a Hebrew idiom for they should get paid especially those who labor in preaching and teaching and so within our form of government we have some elders who are ruling elders who who rule and govern and shepherd but then other elders like pastors are focused on preaching and teaching and he's saying those elders who are preaching and teaching essentially devoting all of their lives to preaching and teaching those elders should be compensated. Notice the text that he cites. 1 Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says, this should be familiar now, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. There's Deuteronomy 25.4 again, and he's going to quote from the ministry of Jesus when Jesus sends out the 72, and quote, the laborer deserves his wages. That's what Jesus said when he sent out the 72, and he said, don't take a knapsack, don't take money. You'll get supported by those in whose houses you stay. And then Jesus says, the laborer is worthy of his wages. So, in two key situations, when it comes to supporting the ministry of the local church, Paul does not root his argument in the tithe, but just in the greater principle That people who labor in a particular matter should get paid for doing that. Because, like, pastors are not Levites. We're not the New Testament Levites. Who are the New Testament Levites? You. Okay? Nate, Nine, Chris, and Dave, we're not New Testament priests. We're pastors. All of Christians are the priesthood of believers. Okay? And there are some new things in the New Covenant. So God calls his people based on these principles to give to the ministry of the local church. Okay, what's the the relevant question? So you're like, well, if I think a lot of ministers, probably even true with me, one of the reasons, I think one of the reasons that, that ministers are Are reluctant to go here is that they're worried that if the tithe is not normative if if the tithe is not morally binding on the Lord's people what do you think some ministers and sessions are are worried about they're worried that no one will give if there's not some kind of standard that's that's normative there there's a concern that maybe people won't give well that's not the concern God's people are amazingly generous And that concern should never drive our interpretation of God's Word. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 9, verses 7 and 8. Even though the Bible doesn't like set out an absolute percentage by which you should give in the New Covenant to the church and other Christian causes, we've got some wonderful criteria here. In 2 Corinthians 9, what's going on is the Apostle Paul... Is raising money from Gentile churches to support famine relief back in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem where the mother church was, there was a famine. There was great difficulty. The church in Jerusalem was suffering. The church in Jerusalem was primarily composed of what? Of Jews. And so Paul when he goes out on these missionary journeys, he's raising support to bring back a substantial financial relief gift For the mother church in Jerusalem, largely from Gentile churches, to be a blessing to the church in Jerusalem and, and to try to bring unity between Jew and Gentile. Sometimes the Jews would look down on Gentile Christians. Well, if the Gentile Christians are offering this incredible gift, what does that do? Okay, that could, that should like burn, uh, that should like pour out burning coals. On the consciences of the believing Jews like like you know it was a it was an act of of unity so at any rate so Paul is out in these churches okay that he's planted and he's raising money okay to go take back what criteria does he give he doesn't tell them you got to give 10% what does he say first Corinthians 9 7 & 8 each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly. That's not just talking about financially, you know. If you trust him, he will care for you. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound and every good work. In other words, this is going to be so good for your sanctification and your growth in the Lord. So the criteria that Paul establishes are as follows: give. He calls on God's people to give. Okay? It's not if you give, it's just what you give. Give to the Lord's people, not reluctantly. Okay, don't be stingy or close-fisted. Give not reluctantly. Or what? Or under compulsion. Don't just give because you have to. Give because you want to. He says because, because God does what? God loves a cheerful giver. People who are captivated by the grace of God in Christ Jesus can't help. But be generous as it relates to supporting the ministry of the local church and other wonderful Christian causes How much do you ask you know Should you give well, that's a matter between you and your family and the Holy Spirit for some people um, based on a variety of situations Somebody might be only able to afford 1% Or 2% other people might choose to use like that Old Testament standard of a tithe You know that sounds like a good benchmark, okay? Others might give 30% others might be able to give 50% or 60% But Paul's norm is that each one should give What he's decided in his heart to give not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver because the Lord our God is the greatest giver there has ever been. He gave the Lord Jesus, he gave everything that he had to save a people like you and me. The reasons that we give are in response to what he's given to us, okay, so that the people at Providence Presbyterian Church can hear the gospel and grow in him and be matured and refined but we also give so that others can come to know that same love grace and mercy that we have the privilege of knowing ourselves that beloved is how malachi 3 applies to today let's pray our gracious god and father we were humbled when we consider what you've given for us you've given everything for us lord and we are just stewards of all that you have given to us. Um, Father, I, I, I pray. Well, first of all, I thank you for the generosity of your people at Providence Presbyterian Church. Our session, our leadership, certainly I have been humbled and amazed at the generosity of your people. We thank you for this wonderful church where we, where we can preach about the person and work of Jesus Christ every day single week. Father, it's our desire that that would continue, not just in our day, but for generations to come. Father, we pray that you would work in all of our hearts so that we would give graciously and freely and cheerfully in light of all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.